0: Yeah, I think that's kind of our secret sauce. We're very focused on qualitative research, actually, and particularly ethnography, which is basically observational research. I'm not a big believer that, let's say, things like surveys can tell you about what customers really want because customers don't actually know what they want necessarily. Yeah. And sometimes you can uh, you can find unmet needs through, through seeing workarounds. Let's say you watch a customer interact with a product and they do this weird thing like they they go you know they fumble with it and then they do this workaround well the question is well why do they do the workaround you know what's what's wrong in the current product today so that that usually sets off light bulbs for a researcher to say hey there's something you know going on here with this product
1: welcome to the irresistible factor a podcast where i talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I'm chatting today with Zell Crampton, who is the founder and CEO of Diggs Pets, and I cannot wait to hear all about how he started this company and where it's headed. And it is definitely one of my favorite topics. As you all know, I'm a crazy dog lover and also animal lover in general. So I'm really happy to be chatting about this topic. So welcome, Zell.
0: Well, it's great to be here. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming and joining us and chatting with us. I think that we're going to get a lot of good information and inspiration for people. So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about how Diggs came to be?
0: Sure. I'm sort of a life you. I'm a lifetime sort of dog nut. I like to joke that there's pet owners, pet parents, pet nuts and then there's me <laughs> 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 and so I've always been really really just super intrigued by working with animals and then I fell in love with the pet industry in about 2011 I started to look at all the growth and the excitement and, or, and how people were changing and the way they viewed pets and human what we call in the industry humanizing them more and all that kind of stuff and so I started you know one pet business I started another pet business ultimately didn't love them Kept working on pet businesses for years until I had this what a uh, aha moment in 2016 when I got my latest dog Louise, who was the love of my life. Um, she I adopted her from the shelter uh, in Long Island, and I tried to buy you know high quality pet products for her. You know my friends at the time were having children, buying homes. I became really exposed to some very premium lifestyle brands like Simple Human, Yeti, things like that. Up baby for for the children's uh, world, and I was. Sort of dismayed at the low quality unsafe ugly products in the pet industry as, particularly as compared to those other consumer categories and so I set on a mission to create uh, you know a premium lifestyle brand for for pets um, so in 2016 I, I started product development figured out what you know the needs were and started with a dog crate because people hate their dog crates and they're ugly and they were flimsy and had safety issues and so you know we thought hey let's create a safer more innovative, better quality dog, and build a lifestyle brand around that. And finally launched a Kickstarter in early 2018, launched on our website in in late 2018. And then it's been sort of a rocket ship ever since. We just turned three years old in October and very excited uh, to see the continued growth.
1: So first, congratulations on your three-year anniversary. That's incredible. And the crate thing I think is so interesting because I don't know if that's a usual entry point when you start a pet Lifestyle brand, but it's a great one because as a dog owner and a crate owner of many, many, many different kinds, I think that in general, you're right. They certainly don't live up to the human standards that we mostly like to have for our dogs now. So that's really cool. Tell me about, I'm really curious to know about the Kickstarter idea for a brand because I've heard that a couple of times recently, Um, but it's, I think, a relatively new concept. I don't think that's the first way. And I'm interested to see how you found that from a process perspective and success perspective?
0: Sure, Uh, Kickstarter can solve a number of challenges as you're launching a new product or a new brand. And different people will give you different answers. And I think most people think about it as a way to fund a new venture. And that might be true in some cases, but I would would argue that for every dollar you, you get out of Kickstarter, you probably have to put in 50 to 75 cents. So it's not mm-hmm. exactly, uh, especially if you're new. If you're established and you have already a follower network and email list, things like that, it's different. But if you're new, it's it's quite challenging to drum up the necessary uh, kind of demand without investing a lot in marketing and all that kind of stuff. But some people are very lucky in that regard, and it works out great. I think for most people, the biggest value is sort of market testing and early feedback before your market's actually out there, your product's actually out there, excuse me. And that was certainly the best part of the feedback for us. You know, when you're think about sort of the, the end of a two-year product development journey for me um, when we launched our Kickstarter, give or take... And we had prototypes, but you can only do so much beta testing and customer feedback from surveys. When you actually put it on the market and see if people actually fork over money, and they actually give you, you know, direct written feedback and you know email you say, hey, I like this, I don't like that. It's actually very valuable, uh, yeah. and it helps. And it actually helps you think through, hey, I should tweak this, tweak that, change this, change that. And equally important is not just the product, but actually your messaging, your positioning of the product. Yeah. So let's say when you finally do launch for, for good. You know you might have said this, but actually, if you frame it this way, it's going to resonate better. And I think that's very valuable.
1: How did you find that out from Kickstarter? just from feedback from people that you were chatting with? Did you test different messages or did you just sort of listen to what people were saying and aggregate it?
0: I'd say all of the above from a let's say from a you know you have we had something like four hundred and fifty backers, but then lots of people who don't back you as well will give you feedback and sort of yeah. message things and. For better, or for worse, people are brutally honest, which I think yes, is, uh, is generally a good thing, unless it's coming from a disingenuous place. I would say, yeah. and so you try to filter through the noise, and you know some people understand what you're trying to do, some people don't, and so you try to figure out, okay, this was helpful, this is not helpful. Oh, I didn't see it this way. That is good. This doesn't make sense. I'm going to forget that. But then also to my earlier point around sort of investing to be successful in the Kickstarter platform, we were running ads, Facebook ads, for example. We ran, we did email campaigns, we did all kinds of you know PR stuff. And like with any you know, marketing campaign, you test, you A-B test, you mm-hmm. run different iterations and see what works. And in some ways, it's kind of lower stakes to do it at a Kickstarter. And so you can figure out what, you know, what, what's better. And then when you're even building your website after a Kickstarter, you have a much better understanding of your customer and what resonates.
1: Were you running ads to drive people to your Kickstarter campaign? hmm Wow. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Um, it, I think at one point, we did it for email capture, uh, which is you know, very helpful from a lead generation standpoint. Yeah. And then once the Kickstarter was live, we definitely activated the email list, but then we would run uh, ads to uh, our page and there's there's actually all kinds of audiences that you can you can find that on Facebook that are typical backers of, of yeah. Kickstarter you know I, I think I don't remember the numbers anymore but you know eighty percent of Kickstarter backers are the same you know a couple million people you know yep yeah, yeah,
1: that makes sense that makes total sense because it's an interesting way to get involved in something um, and and I think that Those probably are the early adopter people, which are so great for a brand on so many levels. So, I have a question about that too. When you started connecting with people who liked the brand, did they start talking about you as well? Like, because once people start investing, obviously they become advocates.
0: Yeah, I think we were, you know. What I would say is there's always like, you know, it's a bit of a U-curve, right? Or maybe more of a bathtub in the sense you have these early adopters, people who are super yeah. excited about the concept, you know, a lifetime ev- you know evangel evangelist of the brand, but then you have to sort of prove yourself that you really are legit, right? It's like when you go on Amazon and you see something with two reviews, yeah, there's some people who are like, I don't care about that. I'm just going to buy it. I'm happy to be the early adopter. But there's some other people who are like, mm, unless there's 500 reviews and everyone sort of vetted it for me, I'm not yep. that interested. Yep. And that's what the majority of customers are. So I would say... Yes. You know, we had those early kind of adopters, definitely helped with word of mouth, definitely helped with us kind of scale the brand early, but we've definitely seen a very strong acceleration in sales, you know, within the last 18 months or so as our products have started to reach sort of some level of brand recognition and sort of maturity, certainly on like, you know, well-known platforms like Chewy Amazon and our website, for example.
1: Yeah. So tell me about the brand itself. So where are you headed? So you started with Crates. I know you launched something new that was, I don't remember what it's called, but it's the thing that's a popsicle.
0: Called Groove. Yeah. It's a crate training aid uh, that, you know, first of its kind tool to help with the crate training process, which is a pain point.
1: Yeah. And has that been, a, been successful?
0: Yeah. Huge success. Um, I bet. You can find Groove uh, in every Petco, PetSmart, Chewy, every platform. And it's, it's a runaway home run for us.
1: Awesome. That's great too. How did you get into retail? What was your process for that? Persistence?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm the look, there's, you'll, you're getting 101 answers and you seek see to 101 people. Yes. But I think from my perspective, product is everything in the sense that if you have a great product and are surrounded by a great brand, things will come to you and things will work out. And so I think sometimes people focus too much on, don't focus enough on the quality of the product and, and the problem it's solving. And like what makes it unique, and I think if you have great products, people will come to you. Which was the case in most with most of the retailers actually that we we've now. So I think if I think of Petco, PetSmart, and and Chewy, I think they were all inbound to
1: us. Wow, that's so exciting! Mm-hmm. That's really awesome. And then from an innovation standpoint, you guys are pretty interesting because you're not going crazy with innovation and creating product after product after product. It seems like you're doing it very very thoughtfully and carefully. And I think that's absolutely the way to go because i've seen so many brands over innovate have too many products in the market and then not really be able to move anything so is there thought behind that as far as what your innovation sort of time frame is and what your plan is for how many innovations you want to have in a any given period
0: yeah look i think we have a very high bar for what is you know market ready for us and well, there's two sides to that. There is, you know, we have a m- mentality of, you know, get it out so that we can get feedback. But we also mm-hmm. have a mentality that we're extremely data driven and we don't launch anything that doesn't solve a real problem and a real need. And so there are some of our peers in the industry, to your point, that are much more sort of like, you know, what I would call like pray, uh, spray and pray, you know, yes. get the products out yes. there, hope, hope something works. And, you know, you end up to your point with some slow movers and some things that kind of erode the brand over time, in my view. And so we've taken a different approach, which is way more focused on the intentionality, the design criteria for every product and making sure we hit the mark and, you know, trying to learn as quickly as possible and improving our product every single time we produce it. So, you know, even though we launch our, you know, let's say a product, it's constantly evolving multiple times a year as we get feedback, as we learn how to improve it, because for us, it's, it's sort of like an ever continuing journey to improve our products. That being said, you know. I view there's tons of opportunity in the pet supply space for innovation and opportunity. And so very often it's a question of what do we do first? Where can we focus first? So we do have a lot of products coming out. We have some, what we're calling our walk suite. So, you know, leash, collar, poop bag dispenser, innovative poop bags, very excited to show our new poop bags that are coming out soon. You know, we have a travel carrier coming out soon. We have all kinds of fun stuff just to give a little sneak preview and then all next year, many product launches, but they've all gone through the rigorous, test of what problem does it solve? What does the data show? You know, what does the research show? And how, you know, have we really hit the mark in terms of our first and foremost, the baseline of our products has to be safe and mm-hmm. not just safe by pet product standards, but elevated kind of what consumers expect to be safe in consumer products. The second is sort of aesthetics and how does it look? Is it beautiful? Is it functional? And third is innovative. Is it doing something different? We're not that interested in, in having a product that just competes on the shelf, you know, on price or how pretty is our packaging. That's nice. Right. That's, but we're actually much more interested in focusing on what makes our product unique and different. And we'll actually have customers gravitate towards it because they understand the problem it's solving.
1: And how do you, so you said you're data-driven and you do a lot of testing before you launch products. How do you do it? Do you do it with consumers? Do you do concept testing?
0: Yeah, I think that's kind of our secret sauce. We're very focused on qualitative research, actually, and particularly ethnography, which is basically observational research. I'm not a big believer that, let's say, things like surveys can tell you about what customers really want because customers don't actually know what they want necessarily.
1: Yeah.
0: And sometimes you can uh, you can find unmet needs through through seeing workarounds. Let's say you watch a customer interact with a product. And they do this weird thing, like they they go, you know, they fumble with it, and then they do this workaround. Well, the question is, well, why do they do the workaround? You know, what's what's wrong in the current product today? So that that usually sets off light bulbs for a researcher to say, hey, there's something you know going on here with this product. So we take a combination of observation plus what people tell us plus what we know are problematic, you know, in the market today. Put that in all the blender, and then we come up with sort of what we're targeting to solve and what our kind of key design criteria are. And then once we have prototypes, we start testing with early sort of internal people. We do beta testing. And then once the product's in the market, you know, we we never consider it finished, as I said before. So we're constantly getting feedback and iterating on the product.
1: That's fascinating. You know, you're the first person of all the people I've talked about that mentioned ethnography. And I have not heard anyone talk about that in so long because everybody jumped over the past two years to quantitative surveys and I love them. I mean, we have a digital research platform that we created for exactly that, but it also has an insights part of it, but I have not heard anyone say ethnography. So first, I just wanna share what that is. I mean, that's following someone around and watching how they behave. And that's a really big commitment from a research perspective because it takes a lot of time. And it seems that's so interesting that you're doing it that way because when you're launching and you're in a hurry to get to profitability, that feels like something that people don't even entertain. So I just love that because I think that watching behavior is so important. And the fact that you really understand how people are dealing with these issues, I'm sure that it's making your product so much better. So I love that. And I think it's fascinating. And I think more people should probably be thinking about that. And then I, I also am curious to know, like you've talked a lot about all the successes that you've had, which is so great. You, but you're you started a company a couple of years ago. You must have had challenges also. Can you talk about way, some of the way more
0: than successes? Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they feel they feel like they're more of them, that's for sure.
0: Oh, uh, the question is, you know, I would say you know, when you're CEO and founder, your job is problem solving and dealing with with challenges. Like that's literally the, like, you know, if I were to summarize your job description in one sentence, that's what it is. And it's it's actually hard to take a step back and see how successful you've been until you're you're forced to do so, because every day is is a new sort of challenge, and sometimes they're small, and but more often than not, they're big challenges. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I think about everything from you know starting a company like ours, you have to when people say, hey, when they get this straight, you want to make a two hundred fifty dollar dog crate for small dogs when the when the equivalent on the market in some cases can be as low as forty dollars on Amazon. You know, the number of people who said I was crazy was is is probably more than I'd like to admit. But I think there is. I have a certain belief personally that if everyone looks left, you should probably look right. And I think there's something to not following the crowd if you're trying to do something differently. If you think there's an opportunity for innovation, because otherwise, you know, if too many people are looking at opportunity, then I think that there's the likelihood of someone's already found it. You got to look elsewhere. And so anyway, but what that means is it was hard to convince suppliers it was hard to convince investors. It was hard to get all kinds of people. And so, you know, the nice. famous, like I got a hundred no's before I got one yes from investors is a true story. And certainly until I was able to prove out the concept, and we need a lot of money before we can even launch. So that took a lot of convincing, a lot of conversations over many years to kind of get people on board. But you know, that was the main thing. And then our product, you know, it's very complicated. It may operate in a simple way, but it's actually extremely complicated to manufacture and design, especially at the cost points. Believe it or not, uh, that we've achieved. And so, there were huge engineering challenges and huge kind of logistical challenges in getting our products over. Like for example, our our large crate that we just uh, launched on pre-order this past week, which we're super excited about. You know, it's so big that we couldn't actually ship it in one box because it, you know, FedEx and UPS would consider it an oversized package, and then the cost of shipping would be almost yes. as much as the cost of the product. Um, so we have to, you know, quickly figure out how to, you know, ship it in two small boxes that would kind of be acceptable to UPS and FedEx. And so thankfully we did that. But the point is, you know, when you're dealing with big, he- heavy, bulky product, yeah. it does get to the point where you do need to find engineering solutions. But then, you know, the other things that everyone's dealing with, I'm sure you've seen some other folks talk about global supply chain issues, whether oh, that's yeah. delays and many, you know, in, in, insufficient uh, raw materials, glo- you know, global tariffs and all kinds of stuff it just adds to the complexity of the business and so Look, and then, then whenever you're growing three to five X per year, and we've been growing five X the last couple of years, you know, it's, it does add to the stress on the business from every dimension you can think, whether that's sort of working capital and inventory needs to, you know, culture and rapidly scaling a team. And can you maintain the, the focus on data and focus on the pet parent and focus on quality and all those types of things you mentioned before in terms of that, you know, you can be distracted by just time to market and things like that. How do you maintain? Your process, how do you maintain all this and through COVID and remote work? And so, yeah, I mean, I can go on and on about challenges. And so, it's really more what you're most interested in.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm curious to what, you know, especially, I mean, I think it's interesting that you launched with a crate because it is a big ticket item and it's heavy and there are all kinds of challenges. And now you're moving into things that are probably not as challenging from a production perspective. I'm just curious as to what kept you going when, you know, you were like, "Ah, we can't even ship this thing. It costs more than to ship than to make. Like, what was it that just kept you going instead of saying, I can do something else. This is crazy.
0: Yeah. I think it to be very resilient. I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the most important, you know, attributes of an entrepreneur. I think it's definitely true. I think I had just a very strong belief in the market opportunity and that there was, there was a need for this in the market. And so it was just a matter of figuring out the details to make it all work. And I sort of had a belief, and I have always advocate this, that if you make fact-driven, data-driven decisions every step of the way, thoughtful, rational decisions every step of the way, you give yourself the best shot of being successful. And you know, you don't go into a business without having done the, the diligence and the work ahead of time. And so you know going into it, it should work. Okay, you're going to have challenges, but then it's just a matter of like, what are the options? How do you solve it? What are the issues to resolve? And if you keep doing that, and you're, meth- thought, and you're sort of like religious about rational and logical decision-making the whole way through, you give yourself a good shot, I would say. It's when you start to kind of let emotional decisions or things that are not, you know, when you start to get clouded by noise, you know, there's always challenges. I think that's when things go wrong. So look, I think there's been challenges, but I think I have this mindset that if we can just figure out, break down the problem, figure out how to solve it, we will get there.
1: Awesome. What's your goal for the next three to five years for for Diggs?
0: Look, I, I really think we can and should become the global preeminent brand of innovative pet supplies. So, you know, I think I hope to be, you know, a Yeti for pet or or an up baby for pet or a simple human for pet, something like that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And,
0: and I think more importantly, and tied to that is elevating the quality and, and product standards for pets. I think that's Really, the ultimate mission for us is how do we elevate those products? How do we set a new standard? You know, as an example, we're working with third party. We started the company, by the way, working with premium baby products manufacturers that are held to the highest safety standards in the consumer industry to see if we can bring some of those standards to pet. And now we're working officially with third party independent testers, the most commonly well-known like Intertech and those uh, to figure out how can we start to set new testing and quality standards, ASTM type standards for the pet industry.
1: Yeah, that's really exciting for me, especially as a pet owner, because I think that people are starting to do those things with their pets. Like I take my dogs everywhere. I'll admit once in a while, they might sit at the table once in a while. And so, but when you think about what we do with them, we put them in the car and most people don't have dogs protection for their cars. And we buy whatever crates there are, but we're not really thinking, is this the same as a crib? Like, But there are things about it that are so similar. So I think it's so awesome that you're doing it. And I I really do think that the market is super ready for that. I mean, the way people are with their pets has changed so dramatically and continues to. So that's really exciting. And you said lifestyle brand. I guess that's what you mean when you say lifestyle brand, Yeti for pets. Have you thought about or talked about, talked to those brands? About potential partnerships or anything like that,
0: we are working on some partnerships. Actually, the former CMO of Yeti is on our board, uh, Melissa oh, awesome. Goldie. Yeah, awesome. so you know uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful human being. But no, you're absolutely right. There's going to be tons of opportunities for those types of partnerships, and those are we are you know looking for them and excited to, to see where those can go.
1: Wow. Amazing. Before we wrap up, I'm curious to know if you have any advice for people who are. I mean, you didn't. This isn't your first company that you started right you said this is your third
0: yeah well third pet company but I didn't launch the first two you know I think going back to like making like smart decisions the whole way through I think uh when I looked at in one case actually I was already pitching to investors but then I pulled the plug on those because they were I didn't like the, the economics their execution risk was too tough and so yeah I think um the best advice I can give is you know have strong perseverance. You will encounter like what seem like insurmountable challenges, like, you know, the, the sky is falling, it's over, but it, yeah. I think <laughs> break down the problem, think it through, figure out your options and just keep going. I think that's the yeah. best advice I can give.
1: Yeah. And how do you keep going when you really do feel like the sky is falling and it's over? What makes you keep going?
0: I think you have to be passionate about the mission, right? If, you, if you're not pat, and I, that's why I always tell people like, don't go do something you're not excited about, or you're not your own customer. Like you're not, if, like I said at the beginning of this this inner this discussion I, i'm I'm the most passionate pet owner there is, and that means that when I wake up every day like I am genuinely excited of creating better products that will help Louise and my dog and others and so I think if you start with something that you're extremely passionate about, then I think you'll have that will to keep going, even though it seems tough
1: yeah, awesome. Anything else before we wrap that you'd like to share? I mean, I think there's so much good advice here. I love some of the things that we talked about. I'm so excited about it because there are some things that I've never heard anyone say on an interview. So that's really cool for people um, who are listening to hear anything else you want to share.
0: One more thing I think is really important when you're thinking about a new business is choose a great market. You know, I like, because the pet industry is now so large and growing so quickly. I like to joke that just showing up to work in the pet industry, you can make money.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think,
0: if you go to an industry that's in decline or growing slowly or the margins are tough, you're just going to have a real uphill battle. I think if you yeah. choose a market, again, but you have to be passionate about it, but if you choose a market that's growing, that's large, that has real opportunity, things are changing, your life will be much easier.
1: Awesome. I think that's really good advice too. And I think that's hard because sometimes you just want to do what people are doing and you don't realize that it's already done. Mm -hmm. and it's time to try. Yeah. So that's really cool. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I think this is really great and I appreciate your time and I'm really, really excited for you guys. And I can't wait to see where you go with the brand. It's awesome.
0: Thanks. It's been really fun.
1: Thank you for listening to the Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.